night uh, for us all is to take a, a bit of a different look at the Christmas message just to see, um, do we really understand beyond just the um, typical story of what Christmas is, of what does it mean to be incarnate? What does it mean that God became flesh? And what I hope to accomplish tonight is for us to use tonight to gain a deeper appreciation come Christmas morning when you're distracted by gifts and different things like that, just to remember what that story is indicating to us. There's a, there's a, a, a humility to the incarnation that can only be appreciated when we take a look at the supremacy of the one who was in a womb. So after we pray, I want to uh, take a look at some texts tonight that you probably don't normally see. Uh, some of these you see in the Christmas story, some of these you do not, but they're all meant to paint a picture for us tonight that will help us um, just be moved a little bit more, I hope, Christmas morning. How does that sound? All right. So let's pray, and we'll get going. Father, in Jesus' name, we come to you. And Lord, uh, as we present scriptures tonight, just pointing to one of the greatest acts of humility and love that we've ever seen, Lord, uh, we pray that uh, this would be an encounter with you tonight, and that our hearts be open to being moved in whatever direction you want them to go, Lord, that you would overcome our self-will and our distraction and, and all of that, Lord, and just speak to us tonight. So we open up our hearts, our minds, and our Bibles to you tonight, Lord, and, and just ask that uh, you meet with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So what does it mean that this omnipresent God restricts himself to the birth canal of a woman? What does it mean that this all-powerful God has to be held because his legs aren't strong enough to stand? So what does it mean that a God that knows everything puts himself into a state where he has to grow now in wisdom and in stature? So what is all of this pointing at? Well, I want to start tonight by simply looking at the God of the Old Testament, the God that the Jews encountered through prophets, through the Torah, through their stories. And I want to start in Isaiah chapter 6. Now we typically take our Christmas stories from Isaiah 7. But I want to look at Isaiah 6 for a moment. And in verse 1 it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And if you remember, if you were with us during the Christ in the Old Testament teachings, we talked about these seraphim, we talked about this robe that represents his majesty filling the temple. I mean, this church wouldn't even be the size of a room in the temple. But can you imagine somebody's train of the robe filling this sanctuary and the rooms on the side and all of that? What kind of robe that would be? Now imagine the Jerusalem temple being filled with that robe because the robe signifies the majesty of a king. 
So how majestic is this picture telling us about God? And these seraphim, with these six-winged seraphim, are crying out the only attribute that we get of God that's celebrated with a choir of three cries. This holy, holy, holy. And this holiness that's celebrated here is a traumatic holy, holiness. It traumatizes all who encounter it. This is an experience that we're just not used to having. John Calvin put it this way. He said, hence that dread and terror which holy men of old trembled before God as our scriptures uniformly relate. Every time these holy people like Isaiah encounter God, there's this instant fear and trembling and certainty of their own death that's going to happen just because they saw him. Just because they saw him. Just because they saw a manifestation of him or an, an, a, a vision of him, not even the reality of him. It brings men to their knees. In Revelation chapter 1, we get a, an, an awesome picture of Jesus in a form that's called a blazon. A blazon is a description from head to toe. So who are we talking about this Christmas morning? Revelation 1, when the Apostle John, who actually walked with Jesus for three years in a row, and then saw him naked and beaten and bloodied on a cross, and then risen from the dead, now he gets, decades later, this opportunity to see him in his heavenly form, and he says, in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. So now he's going to have a brand new encounter with Jesus, and this is what he sees. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as is refined in a furnace. And catch this. And his voice, the sound of many waters. He's talking to us. You hear him? All right. His voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Who is ever in world history described like that? Is there any king that ever received anything close to a description like that? He stands alone in this appearance. In fact, this description is telling us far more than meets the eye. If we look a little bit closer at this description, we see it talks about his head and his hair is white like wool, his feet that are like girded, uh, uh, and it talks about the, the garment down to his feet, so it mentions his head and his feet. In other words, from head to toe, he's fully man. This is, uh, this is somebody being described as fully man. Yet, it talks about the golden sash around his chest and his feet are like brass. So he has the gold, the preciousness of the gold, and he's got the commonness of the brass. So he understands from head to toe, he understands the common, the brass, he understands the precious, the gold. 
And then it says, his hair is white like snow and his eyes are like a flame of fire. So you have the cold of the snow and the heat of the fire. It's all within him. All these extremes fit within his own capacity. And then it says, his feet were like fine brass as in refined in a furnace and his voice is like many waters. So you have the dryness of the furnace. You got the wetness of the waters. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He comprehends all of these extremes within his own countenance, within his own form. He's the first. Nobody precedes him. He's the last. Nobody comes after him. Okay, all things are made for him, by him, and through him. He's the source of all things. He's the goal of all things. And he's the means to the ends of all things. This is who we're talking about. Revelation will also tell us that he holds seven stars and he walks in the midst of seven lampstands. He was dead and he came to life. He holds a sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. He has the seven spirits of God. He holds the key of David. Who op he opens and nobody can shut what he opens. And what he shuts, nobody can open. Revelation says he's the amen. He's the final word on everything. He's the faithful and the true witness. He's the beginning of the creation of God. He's the one that John saw as a lamb standing as if slain. Who could possibly fit these descriptions? Who could possibly have the appearance of being slain and be seen standing? Who could possibly have a two-edged sword in his mouth and yet he's a lamb at the same time? Who could possibly fit these descriptions? Who would dare to ever put that in their own biography? Can you imagine the arrogance of somebody saying, like on eHarmony, this is my description? Where nobody's close. Nobody's in the ballpark of this one. We go to Isaiah 40. We get further testimony of this one. In Isaiah 40, we'll start in verse 10. He's described, it says, he says of himself, he says, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. His reward is with him and his work before him. Speaks of strength and power and rule. He has the authority to reward. And the very next verse says, he's a shepherd that feeds his flock, gathers lambs in his arm, carries them in his bosom, gently leads those who are with young, He's this mighty warrior that comes with a strong arm and also with that strong arm, he carries his people like a lamb against his bosom. He's able to rescue and reward. He's able to provide and to protect. He's like the picture that Moses saw in the burning bush. He's an all-consuming fire. And then on closer examination, not a single leaf has been harmed or damaged. Verse 12 says, He measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. We talked about that. The palm of his hand, 330 million cubic miles of water. This is who we're talking about. 
Verse, thir- verse 14, whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him? He has all knowledge with no teacher. He, ha- he has all wisdom before there are any books. He's the source. He's the truth. He's not a truth teller. He's simply the truth. Everything that's true is, is, is results from him. It's, it's a part of him. To know the truth is to know a part of him. His wisdom is beyond that of Solomon, where Solomon can only offer to flee from the adulterous woman. And then when you find the virtuous woman, marry her. When Jesus encounters an adulterous woman, his wisdom is far greater. He doesn't flee her and look for somebody else. He transforms her into a virtuous woman. His wisdom is far greater. It's without limit. There's nothing that he doesn't know and understand. And everything that we know and understand is only a byproduct of who he is. Verse 22 of the same chapter says, It's he who sits above the circle of the earth. It's he who's sitting above the earth as Isaiah saw as on his throne. And in Isaiah 45, it says he created the earth to be inhabited and he sits above this planet that he said this one's to be inhabited. If you look at our neighbors, Venus on one side and Mars on the other, take a good look at them. Do they look like they're intended to be inhabited? There's absolutely nothing to their landscapes for any sort of life. And this one, you can't avoid life. If you go underwater, you're going to see a whole other world of life under there. If you go into the trees and look up into the atmosphere, you'll see life flying around. You look on the land, you'll see every imaginable creature. And our nearest neighbors have nothing. He created the earth to be inhabited. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain, like a tent to dwell in. We talked about the expanding universe that took us 28 centuries after Isaiah to understand what Isaiah is talking about here. Verse 26, he says, lift your eyes up on high. See who created these things, who brings out their host by number. He's talking about the stars. He says he calls all these stars by name. And we've seen about 100 billion trillion stars. And he says, that's Fred and that's Sally and that's Steve. He named them all. He knows them by name. There's not one that escapes his view, and he only tells us that to tell us, then why do you think I don't know you, who I know by name? His power is limitless. His wisdom is perfect. Everything that's good, noble, and true finds God as its source. Who else can dare Say anything close to this. Psalm 145 will tell us a little bit more about him. Psalm 145, first three verses. David writes, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Any English teacher will tell you 
You shouldn't use great in the same sentence three times. But what else is he going to say? What else is he going to say when he's trying under inspiration to relate this God to us? It's great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 96 tells us, starting verse 4, says, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Revelation 4, back to Revelation chapter 4. There, John tells us, verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Here, John is celebrating the glory of God as creator. He's celebrating as creator. One thing science knows for sure is there is no spontaneous generation. Something can't come out of nothing. And yet at one time there was nothing, and right now there's a whole lot of something. Figure that out without God. He's able to overcome science. He's over the, overcome the very physics that he created to form this orderly universe, to give us life, to make this the planet that is to be inhabited. Chapter 5, verse 12 says, You are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. This is, chapter 4 celebrated Him as Creator. This is celebrating Him as sacrifice. He's worthy because He was slain. How can you possibly... What king have we ever spoken of that created a kingdom and died for it? Not in war and battle amongst many other casualties, but solely and alone as a sacrifice so that the inhabitants of the kingdom could have life. He chooses death. Who else has been spoken of in these ways? In Exodus 33, 20, we're told no one can see God and live. It's not because he's private. It's not because he's shy. It's because he's awesome. You can't handle this vision of God. And your mortal flesh will collapse at the sight of this God. I can't imagine that, can you? I can't picture what that must be like. We're told in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he dwells in unapproachable light. Now we know something about the sun. We know we can't get very close to the sun. Okay, not much closer than we are now. We can't even look at it from 93 million miles away. Okay, But that's just a byproduct. It's a tiny, tiny star that's a byproduct of the unapproachable light of God. And one day you'll see him face to face. 
Have you really tried to probe the depths of that? It'll short-circuit you if you do. So, Judges 13, as the angel of the Lord that we learn through his words and behavior is a Christophany, it's a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ, appears to Samson's dad and mom, Manoah and his wife. And when they realize, because he jumps on the altar of sacrifice and ascends to heaven in the flame, saying, I'm your sacrifice, and they say, we will surely die, for we have seen God. They know that just even putting your eyes upon him carries with it death, and they have to be spared that. Who else, who else carries such weightiness about him? His voice is like thunder, like many rushing waters, and they were also told it's a still and small voice. He's the beginning, and he's the end. He's the alpha and the omega, and he's all things in between. To him and for him and through him are all things. Who in the world can fit all of these descriptions? In Daniel chapter 5, let's turn there. In Daniel chapter 5, here's a king... Belshazzar, ruler of the world in his day, grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, and he's throwing a feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, he gave command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. And as they feast off of these items from the, 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 the holy of, from the temple, disregarding their sacredness, he sees a man's hand start to write on a wall. And it says this of that mighty ruler of the earth. It said, in that same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote, then the king's countenance changed. These are, there's a king who nobody can even walk in the room and talk to him without facing death. And now his, he sees something that changes his countenance and his thoughts troubled him. How bad? Listen, have your thoughts ever troubled you this bad? It says, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. His hips and his knees go berserk at the thoughts that he gets when he sees his hand writing on the wall. And the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me the interpretation will be lifted up and, and rewarded. And then it continues the story. As Daniel comes to interpret the dream, going to verse 17, it says, Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and your, give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. It says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, 
He set up whomever he wished he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men and his heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling with the wild donkeys. This is what God did to the mightiest king of the land. Made him an animal. Who are we talking about here? They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and they brought the vessels of his house before you. You and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. He holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways. You have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. Many, many, tekel upsharshin. This is the interpretation of the word. Many, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, we know this historically, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. That's because God showed him a hand. And writing on the wall, it shook this world ruler to his very foundation, took the life right out of him. And then he who was celebrating with a thousand of his lords, his own power and might, never even saw the next sunrise. Who are we talking about on Christmas? This is who we're talking about on Christmas. So... What is this whole incarnation thing? Well, in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3, as God creates us as his his people, and there's been constant rebellion against him, God says this in in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Isaiah. says, the ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my, and my people do not consider. There's a picture up there for you on the screen that shows this picture. You see this picture on the manger, uh, manger scenes all the time, don't you? And it's a, it's a donkey, and it's an ox looking into the, the manger of Jesus Christ, into his crib. And as I, as I found this picture when we were going through Isaiah, there were comments underneath of it saying there were no oxen in this area of the world. This is, this is a false narrative. This is wrong. And the ignorance of the people with those comments is they don't know what the, the, the painter is, is getting at. There's a picture of Isaiah 1-3 where God is telling his prophet Isaiah, The ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel doesn't know me. 
saying, my people have become dumber than the dumb ox and the dumb ass. They're dumber because they can't recognize their source. They don't know where their provision's coming from. They don't know where their food is coming from. The ox and the donkey do, though, so they're smarter. So as God had said, the ox knows its owner and the donkey knows its master's crib. And the word crib there is actually the word for manger. He knows his master's manger. So this picture is showing when Jesus is born, the ox and the donkey get it. They know that's their master. So God is claiming us as unfaithful because we don't recognize. And that's what we're trying to do tonight is just recognize. This is who we're talking about. See, God is faithful. We have issues being faithful. So what does God do? It says, even when we're unfaithful, he is faithful. In Hebrews chapter 10, starting verse 5, it's an unbelievable quote of Jesus in heaven before the incarnation, talking to his father. It says this in verse 5. He says to his father in heaven, Jesus from heaven, before, this is the Old Testament, says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. They, they started disregarding the sacrificial system. They started giving lame animals as sacrifice, spotted animals, things they were forbidden for offering. They weren't giving their best at all. They were careless about what they were giving God. And Jesus is seeing that and saying, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. He's saying what you really desire is to give me a body and to become this sacrifice. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, this is Jesus talking to his father, seeing his father is frustrated over the sacrificial system. He says, then I said, behold, I have come. And in the volume of the book, it's written of me to do your will, O God. So what is this will that Jesus came to fulfill? What problem is he solving? What answers is he providing? What actions are required based on our unfaithfulness? You just witnessed this divine meeting between Father and Son in heaven. And Jesus compassionately looking at his Father saying the sacrificial system, their heart's not in it. They don't realize that every animal they kill is supposed to be their death and that animal is substituting for them and they become callous to it. So he says, this you don't desire, but rather a body you prepare for me. And it's been written of me that I have come to do your will, O God. And what does that look like? It's chapter 50 of Isaiah, starting in verse 4. Jesus starts contemplating becoming a man. And what does he say? The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. So it He's giving them this tongue of compassion to, to, to be able to lift up our spirits with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. Did Jesus ever have to be awakened before he was born in a manger? No. He's contemplating now, I'm going to be woken up every morning. Listen, you don't like that at all, right? Okay. Now, what, he's God, eternal God going to be awakened morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. 
The Lord God has opened my ear. He's saying he opened my ear. He's telling me something about when I become a man. He said, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. So what is he hearing that he's saying, I heard what he wanted and I was not rebellious. He said, nor did I turn away, but rather I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. And I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Jesus had compassion for his father because his father was upset over how they were treating the sacrifices. And he says, you're going to prepare a body for me. And guess what? They're going to treat me worse than any of those sacrifices. And when you're brought low and you feel humiliated and you feel ganged up on and you feel beat down, Listen to what Jesus says about when it happened to him. Verse 7, For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. He just said, they're going to spit on my face. He says, but I will not be disgraced. Why? He says, therefore, I set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who is near justifies me. So who will contend with me? If God has justified you, all your contenders are already defeated. Do you understand that? Once you're justified, all your contenders are defeated in front of you, no matter what it looks like or feels like in this world. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will grow old like a garment and the moth will eat him up. Meanwhile, when he experiences the shame of spitting and beatings, as they grow old like a garment and the moth will eat them up, he will rise from the dead perfect. So who will contend with him? And who will contend with his people that he will rise up from their graves perfect as well? Who are we actually talking about here? Listen, I'm going to show you a video clip in just a moment. And a very famous man He's become famous over the last several years. He's a clinical psychologist. His name is Jordan Peterson. And I think he's wonderful to listen to. I really do. And I saw this clip. And as I'm thinking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, you're going to see Jordan Peterson wrestling with this thought. And Jordan Peterson, even though he's not a believer, I find him to be one of the most honest men I've ever heard from in my life. He makes no bones about anything. It's truth no matter what the cost. And he, he, he's, he's impressive that way. And in his book that's kind of made him famous, 12 Steps for Something or Other, it's an antidote to chaos. It's 12 rules for living. And what he said, the most important chapter there is entitled, Never Tell a Lie or at Least... Um, he said, always tell the truth or at least never lie. And his life is based around that. You just, whatever's true, you got to say it. It's just part of your journey. You just got to tell the truth. Now, in that honesty, I want you to see in this video clip, when he's asked about belief in God, I want you to see what it's like for somebody who's very brilliant and very honest and yet not saved. Because you know, people will make arguments that are very, they're very biased about. And at all costs, they'll just try to win the argument rather than trying to solve a problem, correct? They just want to win. 
this is what it looks like to wrestle with the idea of who God actually is and could he actually come in contact with us if we could show that clip. This particular critic that I've been reading said, well, that, that doesn't differentiate Christ much from a whole sequence of dying and resurrecting mythological gods. And of course, people have made that claim in comparative religion. Joseph Campbell did that, and Jung to a lesser degree, I would say, but Campbell did that. But the difference, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out as well, the difference between those mythological gods and Christ was that there's a, there's a representation of there's a historical representation of his, of, of his existence as well. Now you can debate whether or not that's genuine. You can debate about whether or not he actually lived and whether there's credible objective evidence for that, but it doesn't matter in some sense because this, well, it does, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter because there's still a historical story. And so what you have in the figure of Christ is an actual person who actually lived plus a myth and in some sense, Christ is the union of those two things. The problem is, is I probably believe that, but I don't okay. know. I don't, I'm amazed at my own belief and I don't <laughs> understand it. Like, because I've seen, sometimes the objective world and the narrative world touch you know, that's Jungian synchronicity. And I've seen that many times in my own life. And so in some sense, I believe it's undeniable. You know, we have a narrative sense of the world. For me, that's been the world of morality. That's the world that tells us how to act. It's real. Like, we treat it like it's real. It's not the objective world. But the narrative and the objective world touch. And the ultimate example of that, in principle, is supposed to be Christ. But I don't know what to, and that seems to me oddly plausible. Yeah. Well, but I still don't know what to make of it. It's too, partly because it's too terrifying a reality to fully believe. I don't even know what would happen to you if you fully believed it. If you believed in the story of Christ, or if you believed that history and, and let's say the narrative make meet, let's Both, say. I yeah. think. I think you... Because when you believe that, you buy both those stories. You believe that yeah. the narrative and the objective can actually touch. Yeah. That's what honest wrestling with this truth looks like. With no biases attached. He says, I think I believe that. He says it's oddly plausible. And what is he talking about? He's saying that the narrative world, this world here of narrative where he says like, you, you can't touch and see and hold morality, can you? But you can read about it. You can understand that it. it's part of the narrative world. But he said, but then there's the objective world that we can see, feel, and touch. And he says, sometimes those worlds touch. Okay, he's a clinical psychologist, and he tries to, to solve the deepest, darkest problems of, of his clients. And he's saying, I've seen those worlds touch. He says, so it's undeniable to me. It's undeniable that the narrative can touch the objective. And he says that figure is typically Christ. And whenever he talks about courage, whenever he talks about honesty, he always says the picture of that is always Christ. 
He can find no other object to compare maximal truth, honesty, and courage to than Jesus Christ from a non-believer's mouth. So he always goes to. But this, this narrative world touching this objective world, I want you to hear this with new ears. It's a verse you know very well, but hear it with new ears now. In the beginning was the word. It's a narrative world. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And then it says this. And the word, narrative world, the word became flesh. Objective world. They touched what he's absolutely horrified at considering is that the untouchable became touchable, okay? The world of ideas. That's what the logos actually is, this word for word here. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the logos. That's, that's the world of ideas and understandings and that they would actually touch the objective world the Apostle John, he wrote it this way in 1 John. He says, that which we have seen with our eyes, that we have handled with our hands and we have heard with our ears, that's what we're proclaiming to you concerning the word, the narrative world of life, the word of life. We've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. This is Christmas morning, folks. This is what the incarnation is. It's, 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 it's this El Shaddai, this most high God that Belshazzar kept talking about, this most high God becoming us. Becoming us. Why? To die for us. That's what we're talking about on Christmas morning. The narrative world has indeed touched the objective world, in the form of Jesus Christ. The infinite became an infant because the infinite loves his creation. Augustine of Hippo said this, man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread of life might hunger himself that the fountain of life may thirst, that the light may sleep, that the way might grow tired on his journeys, that the truth would be accused of being a false witness, that the teacher would be beaten with whips, that the foundation would be suspended on wood, that strength would grow weak, and that the healer would be wounded, and that life himself would die. And C.S. Lewis said, the Son of God became man so that he could enable man to become the sons of God. That's Christmas morning. That's what we're talking about here So, John 3.16 is considered the greatest verse ever uttered to humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, 
but have eternal life. And Christmas morning, you're to be reminded that eternal life was wrapped in swaddling cloths and, and laid in a manger. So that when we try to understand that he was made fully man, that did not exempt him from the birth canal and the womb and his, the, the dependency upon his mother's arms and her feeding him and raising him. Fully man. The humility of our God is astounding. The same God that had the hips of a king come unjointed at the sign of writing on a wall became a baby. The humility of our king. And as Jordan Peterson said, Jordan Peterson said, I don't even know what would happen to somebody if they fully believed because he understands to say you believe doesn't, it's not a declaration, it's a dedication to following him and becoming like him. You can watch some of his other videos where he talks about Jesus. He's asked by Dennis Prager about God, if he believes in God, and the only thing he'll say is this, I live as if I believed in him. But he said, who could ever claim to believe in God? He says, who could ever do that? Because to claim it is to live it, and God is maximally courageous and maximally truthful, and who could ever have the arrogance to say that they follow him? The only thing Jordan Peterson is missing is that it's an easy yoke and an easy burden, and there's tons of forgiveness along the way, that we are called to this incredible God to be like this amazing God that, that King Belshazzar saw, that Isaiah saw, that's unapproachable light, and we are to become more and more like him all the time until we meet him in glory, and along the way, there's grace and mercy and forgiveness for all who trust in him. Meditate on that Christmas morning. Let the awe and the wonder return for us all. In Jesus' name. Lord, we lift up this study to you, Lord, because even more than it was for me or for them, it's for you, Lord, to us to draw closer to you, to realize that the God that exceeds all space and time fit into a baby's crib and subjected himself to beatings, Lord, forgive us for not knowing you better and understanding this better. But we're trying, Lord, and we want to know it more and we want to know it better and we ask you to keep penetrating our hearts to find this because we are your people, Lord. And may we be moved just like this unbeliever was moved with thoughts of you. May we be gripped by you, Lord, this season. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.